0: Okay, if you have a Bible, turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 and 13 is where we'll be at this this morning. Um, What I've realized in teaching through this series on a new identity, I've realized that this, this topic of new identity is like when Jesus talks about the kingdom of God. He talks about the kingdom of God throughout his ministry, and as he talks about the kingdom of God, he uses all of these different ways to show and parables to teach on the kingdom of God. And there's not just one way to talk about the kingdom of God, but the kingdom of God is like this, and it's like that, and it's like this. And I found that in studying for this and teaching through a new, this, this series on our new identities in Christ, it's almost like that. In that I have to come at this at like a million different ways, basically saying or re saying what I've been saying every single week, but in a different way. And today is our last Sunday in this series on a new identity. And what I wanna talk about today is how God actually works in us. How God works in us. He gives us this new identity, but then how does He work that new identity deep in us? And then how do we work it out of us? Or does, how does God work it out of us? What is that tension? look like i'm going to share just by um a warning i'm going to share a lot of scripture today it will be on the screen but at some point you might just stop writing down the verses and just listen because there will be a lot but eventually i'm going to get to philippians chapter 2 which i'll read right now and trying to keep the tension of god's work and our work so let me read philippians chapter 2 verse 12 and 13 and then let me pray Paul writing says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Let's pray. This morning, Lord, I ask you for help. I, I, I really desire more than anything else for um, people, men and women, to have an encounter with Jesus today, more than anything else, not, not with the, the, the music, not with the sermon, but with God himself. I pray, God, that you would make um, personal encounters with people, corporate encounters with people, that you would meet with us, that we would see that we are a part of your big, giant, unfolding, wonderful plan. And then for some hearts in here, they just need rest, They've been thinking and going through a million things. They might have been wrestling through some of these concepts and, 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 and things that we've been teaching and talking about for the last three months. I pray that you would give their heart rest, that you would speak to hearts, that you would say, be still and know that I am God. That that would happen in our hearts today. I pray, God, that you would, you would use me. I pray you would anoint me. I need your help desperately to communicate these truths. Submit my mouth to you and my mind to you, and I ask God that you would teach us together as your church. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, it was my um, deep conviction after we taught through the life of Jesus in the book of Mark to do a series on what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. What does it look like to actually follow? What does it mean, and what does it look like to follow Jesus? What does that do to reorient your life? I mean, it should reorient your, orient your life, right? I mean, if you're a follower of Christ, that should change the way that you live and change the way that you spend and change the way that you date and change the way that you interact with people. That should change everything about you. But why? How does it look? What does that look like? And I really wanted to do this teaching and on this new identity. And so when we started this, I, I, wanted, I wanted to just to, to wrestle through and wrestle with what does it look like that God has given us a new name? What does it look like that the truest thing about us is that we're beloved of God? Truest thing. No matter your desires, no matter where you work or where you don't work, no matter what you have or you don't have, no matter what, what, what conflicting emotions and desires, sexual or not sexual that you have, whatever it is, what, how does the truest thing about you become you're beloved of God and it's proven through the cross, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus? And what we see in the New Testament is that we see implicitly in the Gospels, and we are told explicitly through the the, the letters of the New Testament, that once someone believes the Gospel of Jesus, they're given a new identity. We see this, we saw this, and you see it in the Gospels. It's not explicit necessarily, it's pretty implicit. It's there. It's underlying the narrative of the New Testament, or, or of the Gospels. But in the, in, in the New Testament letters, it's, it's told to us explicitly, this is what happened when you trusted in Jesus. A couple of examples, how we see this implied in the gospel. First, we see this implied in the gospel. I, I don't have time to do a lot of examples. Let me give you just a couple. In Mark chapter 1, Jesus meets a leper. Actually, the narrative says that this leper came to Jesus. He um, implores Jesus. He kneels at Jesus' feet and says to Jesus, Jesus, if you will, not if you can, if you will, you can make me clean. I know that you can, but will you make me clean? Now, leprosy was a disease that was so bad that the rabbis had a name for lepers. They called them the living dead. <clears throat> they were literally real-life zombies They were the living dead. They were walking around dead. And this leper goes to Jesus and says, if you will, will you heal me? And to heal a leper was as hard as raising someone from the dead. Leprosy was contagious. It was horrible to look at. And it wasn't just skin deep, but it affected down into the nervous system, into the bones. Leprosy wasn't just an illness. It was a sentence. One commentator says about leprosy, the social consequences of leprosy were a loss of name, occupation, habits, family, and worshiping community. If you had leprosy, you lost all of your identity and now your identity was that of a leper. You were a leper. That was your identity. You had no human touch, no human contact. And while other sicknesses and illnesses needed to be healed, leprosy had to be cleansed. And leprosy is one of the clearest illustrations that we have of sin it separates us it decays our life it eats away at our soul at our bones as the psalmist says that when i didn't turn to god and repent my bones were eating away at me that's what sin does and then in mark chapter one something pretty cool happens moved with pity it says jesus stretched out his hand and touched the leper you don't touch lepers you're not allowed to touch lepers because once you touch a leper you were unclean you couldn't do that He touched this leper and said to him I will I am willing to heal you I I will be clean And immediately it says the leprosy left him and this man was made clean See, Jesus didn't have to touch this guy. You know, Jesus can heal with a word. He can, like, wiggle his ears and heal people. He can wink an eye. He can nod. He can do anything. He spit in someone's eye before. He can do anything. He can heal in any way he wants to. But this leper, he knew that because leprosy was his identity, because it was not just, it it was his whole life, it was emotional, spiritual, and physical, Jesus touched him, and he cleansed him. And he changed him. And he gave him a brand new identity. In Mark chapter 10, there was a blind man named Bartimaeus who, the same thing happened. Blind, begging. It says in the narrative that this blind man had a cloak. His cloak was his identity. His cloak is what kept him warm at night. It's how he gathered change in the day when he was begging. They would throw the change on the cloak, kind of like people carry on coffee cups around here or something like that. Cloak. And then he would gather up his cloak Take the change, and keep him warm. It was everything. It was his beggar's cloak. And when he met Jesus and Jesus healed him, the narrative says that he threw aside his cloak. I am no longer blind Bartimaeus anymore. Actually, he was the only person to be healed who was actually given a name in Mark's narrative. He's not blind Bartimaeus anymore. That's not who I am anymore. And now he follows Jesus on the way. Jesus changes people's identity. That's implied in the New Testament. Things that once defined people, that once kept people from spiritual life of Israel or social life or experiencing the way of God or the way that God made the world. Jesus restores their capacities and he brings them near to see, to feel, to know. Jesus heals people. He sets people free. And what's implied is that he gives you a new self. He gives you a new identity. Okay. That's implied, but then this is made explicit in the New, Test, in the new Testament writings. As, as the writings go on, the, the gospel writers, Paul and Peter, they make this explicit. They make this explicit, for example, Second Corinthians 5:17. "If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation." This is what happened with the blind man. This is what happened with the leper. This is what happened with the demonic dem- demoniac who had all these lesions of demons. This is what happened. This is what's implied in the Gospels and now is made real in the writings. Anyone is in Christ, they're new. I like how um, the writers talk about how the, when someone's skin was restored. It says that when, when this, the skin of a leper was restored, it was as new. This is what Jesus does. When someone's in Christ, they're new. They're a new creation. The old has passed away. Leprosy is gone. Blindness is gone. Muteness is gone. Demonic demonic presence is gone. You're new. This is explicit here in the writings. Behold, the new has come, and this is from God. This is how the Apostle Paul makes this personal in Galatians 2.20. He makes it personal. He says this in Galatians two twenty. I. Me. I mean, have you ever said this before out loud or wrote it in a journal or something? I don't know if you keep a journal or diary, whatever you want to call it. I'm not going to judge you. But if you write or whatever, and you keep this like I have been crucified with Christ. I see how Paul personalizes it. I. I. All of my ambitions. All of my brokenness. All of my separateness. I. I the leper. Me. The blind me, the broken me, the workaholic to prove my existence me. The please love me and tell me I'm beautiful because I need to hear that I matter me. The I don't need anyone or anything because whatever I need I can self generate or work hard enough to get myself me. I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, the life I live in the flesh, which means the life that gets dressed in the morning, that goes to work, that has friends and relationship, that life I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I have been crucified. The old is gone. The new has come. I've put on this new self, this new identity, this new person. And the life that gets up in the morning... And drinks coffee and like, takes a shower and goes to work and has friends and stuff and, 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 and experiences failures and successes. That life I now live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. See, the personalization of this means that Christ has taken our brokenness. He's taken our separation, our self-righteousness, and now we assume his perfect life, his wholeness, and this is a great mystery. This is the great mystery of the gospel. How does this work, though? We actually see how it works in the story of the leper. How does God assume our old self and give us a new self? How does that even work? How is that even possible? We're showing the possibility of this in the story of the leper. Here's how it happened with our leper in Mark chapter 1. See, it's always been that uncleanness contaminates what is clean, always. So if somebody who's unclean touches someone who's clean, the unclean person doesn't become clean. Actually, the clean person becomes unclean. That happens all the time. So when a leper walks into town, he has to wear his cloak and yell out loud to everyone, unclean, I'm unclean. Because everything he touches, everything, fruit, houses, vegetables, people, babies, everything becomes unclean that he touches because he's unclean. What is holy cannot make what is unholy, holy. So if a leper touches a priest, that priest is unholy, not vice versa. And what is unclean makes what is clean, unclean every single time. But did you notice how Jesus makes this leper clean? What did he do to the leper to make him clean? Jesus touched The leper. You're like, wait a second. I thought if Jesus touched the leper, he would be made unclean. Yes. But it wasn't. This man was made clean. Where did the filth go? Where did the uncleanness go from this leper? What? Did Jesus just like speak it away? Just like be gone, leprosy, be gone, uncleanness, be gone, filth, be gone, decay, and that was it? Actually, no. By touching, and this is important, by touching this leper, Jesus was saying this. I am prepared to become by choice what you are by nature. I am willing to become a man under judgment of the law, under the sentence of death, unclean and broken for you in order to share with you what I have. Jesus was saying, I have freedom. I have life. I have wholeness. And I will assume your brokenness, and I will give you my wholeness. That's implied. But we see it explicit. In 2 Corinthians, for our sake, God made him to be sin, to touch the leper that was all of us, who knew no sin, so that in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. God treated Jesus as if he was your sin, so that God can treat you as if you are his righteousness. Righteousness. God treats you and he sees you once you believe in the forgiveness and the sacrifice of Jesus as as if you lived a perfect life, perfect life given to you. The, The legal word there is imputed to you. You, you who have done things that you're ashamed of and who still do things worthy of the wrath of God, you are Christ's righteousness. So when God sees you, he sees Christ's perfect record. So this new life in Christ, this new identity that Christ gives to us is implied in the Gospels and is explained in the New Testament letters. That's point one. The second thing that I want to point out this morning in our last time together in this series, the second thing that I want to wrestle with through this with you is, how does this new identity that's given to us, placed in us by faith, work its way out of us by faith? Okay, so if I'm given a new identity, if God changes the core of who I am, if he takes on my leprosy, my blindness, my brokenness, my separateness, my sin, if he takes on my sin, but he gives me his righteousness, how does that work its way out? Because I look in the mirror, and I don't see that much righteousness. I look at my heart, I see a lot of filth, I see all of these things still. How does God actually change me outwardly? How does that happen? How does God work into you this new identity, and how do you work that out? How does someone go from being a murderer and militant persecutor of the early church to forgiven and renewed by Jesus, and then one of the greatest leaders in church history and a completely devoted follower of Jesus? If you didn't know, I'm talking about Paul, an early follower of Christ. How does someone go from being a denier of Christ, ashamed and abandoning Jesus, to redeemed and a bold proclaimer of the gospel, and who was, as tradition goes, crucified upside down because of his faith in Jesus? If you didn't know, I'm talking about Peter, who followed Jesus in his earthly ministry. How does this happen? How do you go from you, the broken you, the I'm opposed to God, you, to being the the you that God has remade. How does a change like that happen? This is how scriptures say this change happens. Philippians 2. This is what we read earlier. It says, to work out your own salvation. To work it out. Leave this up for a while on the screen. To work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. To work it out for it is God who works it in. Work it out. For it is God who works it in you, both to will and to work according to his good pleasure. Let's try to talk about what this means for a second. Work out your own salvation. Work out this new identity that God has given you in Christ. Work it out with fear and trembling. Because, or for, it is God who works into you your new identity. Work it out because God has given it to you. Work out your new identity because God has worked into you your new identity. How does this work? Two ways. The first way is trust in God's work and the second way is to work out God's work. Trust in God's work, work out God's work. Trust in and work out. First point, trust in. I want everyone to listen here. God is working in you. If you have Place your faith in the gospel of Jesus. God is working in you. If you have not yet placed your faith in the gospel of Jesus, God is working you towards that end. God is working in you. If you placed your faith in Christ, he's working in you. He has given you this new identity and he is working in you. But you must trust that God is working in you to realize this new identity. You have to trust that. Do you trust that God is working in you? Do you trust that he is still working, that he will continue to work, that it is his pursuit to work in you character and love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and self-control? He's working that in you, and he will complete his work. Philippians 1 says, and I am sure of this, that he who begun a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. He will bring it to completion. God is working in you. But listen, this is, this is I don't know, I, I, I can't say this. I'm like halfway through. I can't say this is the most important thing I'm going to say right now because you'll stop listening. But it's up there. God is working to bring change in your life. However, when God changes us, we don't control how much change we go through. God controls how much change we go through. When God changes you, you don't control how much change you go through. God controls how much change you go through. He works in you to will and to do according to his purpose. And he will complete that work within you. See, a lot of us in here, we want to change. And we want, we want God to change us. But there is a lot more change that needs to take place in your life than you think. You're like, okay, I need, I, need, I need God to change this, tackle this one problem. I'm going to God because I have this one problem, this one addiction, this one habit, this one character flaw. God, can you take care of this one character flaw? God is not in, into complete regeneration. God's like, yeah, but I'm not going to stop there. What, do you expect me just to tackle that one thing and stop? No, I don't do that. I'm into complete regeneration, complete transformation. He's into completion. He's like, I'm going to complete the work I began in you. See, we think, okay, I just need to get over this relationship. God, would you help me get over this relationship? God's like, oh, sure. But I'm not going to stop there. I actually want to redeem your entire sexuality. You're like, whoa, 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 I never, never, that was not part of the deal. It was relationship. He's like, I'm into transformation. I'm going to change the way you see people. I'm going to change the way that you see yourself. I'm going to change entirely, I'm going to change everything about you. We think, well, I just need to get over this, this addiction. But God is in a, complete, in a complete reorientation of the way you treat every substance and every activity to where he becomes your ultimate pleasure and delight. You don't just switch habits. God's not into that. God's like, no, I'm going to reorient your entire life now so that I'm your only source of joy because I'm the only one that can really bring you joy. I'm your only source of pleasure. I'm the only thing that can control you and not kill you. Everything else will control you. Your job will control you, but it will crush you. Alcohol will control you, but it will crush you. Drugs can control you, but they will crush you. I'm the only one that can control you, and you won't be crushed. you actually be liberated. I'm the only one that does that. A.W. Tozer, in his wonderful, beautiful book, The Pursuit of God, says this. The man who has God for his treasure has all things in one. Many ordinary treasures may be denied him, or if he is allowed to have them, the enjoyment of them will be so tempered that they will never be necessary to his happiness. Or if he must see them go one after one, he will scarcely feel a sense of loss for having the source of all things he has in one all satisfaction, all pleasure, and all delight. That is what God's after. And you think he's after, you're like, I just need to get over this problem I have. God's like, not really. See, God is at work in you. And he will not stop working in you until you're complete. God is, is out to work in you his will according to his pleasure. And he's not pleased to stop when one sin and one flaw is taken over. He's after total restoration. I mean, you remember that, that one um, uh, story in, math, in Mark chapter 8 where Jesus heals this blind man at Bethsaida in stages? He heals him the first time and he spits in his eyes. And he, hey, he puts his hands over his eyes and he pulls them and and goes... How how do you see? How is it? And the guy goes, I see people. I see men, but they look like trees, like giant broccoli walking around everywhere. Jesus is like, okay. He could go, really? You know what? That's all you're going to get. I mean, you can see. You couldn't see before. That's an improvement, right? Cool. I'm out. That was good. He doesn't do that. He goes, let's, he touches them again, pulls away. And he says, what do you see now? And it says that his sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. Listen, he'll lay his hands on you again and again and again and again and again and again until you realize complete restoration, until you see everything clearly. You're like, well, I'm kind of healed, but not really there. Well, God's not done yet. And he'll place his hands on you again. And if it takes a million times, he'll do it over and over. Have you ever seen... um, we have a lot of young young parents around, and you ever see, like, watch them interact with their, their kids, especially when they get uh, around, you know, like, I don't know, nine months old or something, where they have, like, stuff on their face, and the mom will go clean it? You ever seen that? Like, maybe booger, snot, something? And, and the kids never like it. I mean, maybe one kid out there likes it, but not most of them. Like, no, I don't want you to clean my face, Mom. And he pulls away. Mom's like, I need to clean your face. You have boogers everywhere. You can't breathe out of your nose. Like, and and the, the, the child just pulling away. Mom, why, why, why are you abusing me? Why do you? And you see, they're not happy. But Mom goes after him again and again and again more, and then sees more on his face, and that like, cleans his whole face off. See, that's that's exactly what happens with, with you. God wants to cleanse you, and you're like pulling away, going, No, I don't want, I don't want that cleanse. I like the way that looks there. God's like. You shouldn't like the way that looks there (laughs) because it's not attractive. It's not good. It's not a good quality to have. And he goes after us again and again and again to bring about complete and total restoration. And we have to trust that work in us. We have to trust that God is at work in us. You have to trust that even trials, even suffering that you go through, God is working his will into your life. I mean, think about that the trials and the suffering you go through, and let's face it, we all go through trials and suffering, is oftentimes God working in you. But you must get something straight. God's work in our lives is never punitive. It's always redemptive. God's work in our lives is never punitive. It's always redemptive. God doesn't punish us for our sins. He doesn't punish us in wrath. You know why? Because there's no wrath left. Jesus has absorbed all the wrath of God for us who believe, every single ounce. So this means you can stop asking yourself or asking God, whatever, if there's some reason why God's punishing you when you miss Muni. Have you ever thought that? It's like, why God? Why do you hate me? I mean, I thought that we had a good thing going. Or when you lose 15 friends on Facebook, or you lose your job, or your car gets towed, you're like, God, I serve you, I love you, and this, this, what did I do? And then you go through in your mind, what did I do? Did I not pray enough? Maybe I didn't pray enough. I didn't do my Oswald Chambers devotional today. That's probably why I missed the Muni. I don't deserve this, God. What did I do to deserve this? What this means is that God's work in your life, your suffering, is never punitive. God is never shelling out punishment to you. This has been a very hard concept for me to grasp. I still wrestle with this. There's things that will go really wrong in my life, and I think back, like, hey, what did I do to deserve this? Did I not, maybe I need to, okay, I need to to be more disciplined here and here. That's why. And that's me not really grasping the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus paid for all of the sin, all my sin, all of my wrath, all of my punishment. So now all that's left is redemption. So what if, what if when your cable goes out, it's not God punishing you but trying to redeem you? What if when a relationship falls on hard times, it's not God punishing you, it's God trying to redeem you? What if when the worst things in your life happen, it's not God punishing you, it's God redeeming you? The Apostle Paul had this physical ailment and he asked God to remove it to make him whole. He asked him again and over and over again and again. And God told Paul that it was a form of suffering to bring about redemptive purposes. 2 Corinthians, Paul writes, says, this is what God said to me. God said, my grace is sufficient for you For my power is made perfect in weakness. See, my grace is sufficient when you suffer. My grace is sufficient when you go through weak times because that's where my power is made perfect. And this is Paul's response. Therefore, I will boast. You see how he just flipped it there? He's like, at first I whined and I asked God to take it away, but now I boast in it. Now I'm proud when I miss Muni. I'm proud when my car gets towed. I'm proud when when I'm really horrible at this thing because in my weakness, I'm made strong. He boasts in his trials because he knows that God is redeeming him in his trials. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, with insults, with hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. See, God is at work in you. You need to trust in that work, no matter how hard it seems to be going. God does this in many other ways too. My wife and I were talking about this last night. She brought up community. God works in us through community. If, you're, if you live on, on your own or you live pretty solo and you live in your own head, you can easily convince yourself that you believe rightly about everything. And that's why you need Community. God uses community to change us. God uses conviction to change us. God uses the peace of Christ. That's why uh, Colossians 3, we've been talking about this. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. God uses peace to change us. Okay, last point. How do we work this out? How does this become true about us and then how do we live in this? How How do we work this out, what God has worked in us? What's our part in all of this? And this is where it gets precarious because we did nothing to enact our salvation. This is where it gets a little hairy, a little sticky because we didn't do anything to deserve our salvation. Paul even says says that while we are to work out our salvation, it's actually God working in us to work out our salvation according to his goodwill. So it's like, hey, you work out your salvation, but it's actually God working in you to work that out. See, we did nothing. It's all God. We too often have this very privatized view of Jesus as our personal Lord and Savior. Have you ever said that before? We even say it sometimes just to cheese out of a conversation. Well, he's mine. He's my personal Lord and Savior. I was talking to someone this past week about this, a new believer in Jesus. Very intellectual guy. Actually got got saved reading Plato. Okay, so he's pretty intellectual. And we were just sitting down chatting, talking. And he's like, I've been telling some of my friends that I'm a Christian now, which is a big deal for him to say. He's like, I tell them, I'm a follower of Jesus, I'm a Christian. And I don't want to say follower of Jesus, so you think it's like, oh, cool, you're following the teachings of Jesus. I'm a Christian now. And this is what, how they respond. Well, that's good for you, you know, whatever works for you. And this makes him so, we are talking about this, he was like, this makes me so angry. It's not just good for me. Jesus doesn't just live in the private hearts of individuals as a source of inner peace. Jesus is the creator, ruler, redeemer, and judge of all the earth. And all we do is repent and become part of his plan of the redemption of all things. Christ is everything. He's not our personal Lord and Savior. He is the Lord and Savior. Say that to your friends and see what they say. And he, we don't, he didn't do his little part so that in redeeming me and saving me so we can do our part. He's done it all, completely. However, we are not passive in this. You are not passive. You don't just go, okay, I have a new identity. I'm passive. I'm just going to sit here, and that's it. I'm going to keep doing what I always did. I'm going to go to the same places that I've always went. I'm going to do the same things I've always done. I'm just going to be the same. You're not passive in this. We are to work out what God has worked in. We are to live in such a way as to show outwardly what God has done inwardly. The language here used in Philippians chapter 2 is scary, to say the least. It means literally this one commentator says, through continuous, sustained, strenuous effort, bring about your salvation. Produce your salvation. That's what it means literally. Produce your salvation. You're like, wait a second. You just went against everything you just said. I know I did. Is that a contradiction in the Bible? Oh, contradiction, I'm out. No, it's a tension. It's tension in Scripture. It's tension between the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of humanity. And that tension needs to stay there. You and I, who have a new identity, a new life, a new self in Christ have the responsibility to work out this new identity to do something about it. I said this, I said this probably, in one of the services, I say this every single week since we started. Now, this has been the hardest series that I've ever taught through in my entire career as a pastor or whatever. The hardest one. These last three months have been more have been more difficult for me to prepare, to hear God, to study, than any other time before. I've been more tempted, more vulnerable, more melancholy, more excited, more low, more high, than any time before. And my wife knows this all too well. And this morning when she was praying for me I was, I was leaving the house, she prayed and she kind of just threw this in there. She has really neat insight when she prays. And she was praying. She said, "Maybe this these last three months that Dave has been wrestling and just being destroyed is just simply this tension between God, what you're working in, and what He's working out." And it would just like click for me. It like made complete sense. There was this peace that came, like, that's, that, I, I, I think I've been, I've been, my life has been being reordered by the gospel, and I'm really realizing what the gospel really is, and it's, it jacked me up for a while. Like, wait, does this really say that? Is This really what it means that Christ died? And then I had, to re, I had to, like, change my life to fit that. And that tension is there, and it has been there for three months, and it's been destroying me. And what this tension is, is what God is working in me, me trying to work that out. And maybe you felt this tension as well. Maybe you feel it right now. God is working in you. And you are responsible to work that out. But as you work it out, know that it's actually God working through you working that out. You're not alone. God works in you to do. If you're not doing, you're saying no to God's work. God works in you to do. So if you're not doing, you're saying, God, I don't want you to work in my life. Does that make sense? But the tension remains there because in your doing, it is actually God doing in you and through you. It's a beautiful tension. At the heart of it is fear and trembling. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. However, the ground for fear and trembling here is not threat. God is not like, okay, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, or else I will destroy you, or else you will be damned. That's not the ground for fear here. The ground for fear and trembling is not threat, but promise. The promise is that God is working in you. The fear and trembling is this, oh my goodness, God lives in me he's working in me. That should cause fear and trembling. He's promised that he's going to complete the work that he began in me. That should cause fear and trembling. He promised to never leave me or forsake me. He said that he sees me perfect. He said that he's committed to me completely. That should cause fear and trembling. It's all Jesus he initiates our salvation. He pursues our salvation. He works in us our salvation, and He will one day bring us to complete salvation. And so when we come to the table of communion, we remember all of this. We come to the table of communi- communion, and it points back. It points back when our salvation happened. Reading a book with the interns serving here this summer, and in the book it said, the author was asked, when were you saved? And he said, 2,000 years ago. Best response ever. And that's what communion celebrates. That I was redeemed 2,000 years ago. It celebrates, it points back to, we weren't saved when we did something about it, God did something about it first. And that's what we celebrate. The broken bread, the body of Christ, the cup, the blood of Christ, poured out for us, broken for us, that we might be saved. But it also points forward. It anticipates that God will finish what he started. Jesus said when he took communion for the last time with his disciples that I won't drink it again until I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. We take communion knowing that one day and one day soon, God will complete the work that he's begun in us. He will complete that work. He is faithful to keep working and complete that work. So when we take communion, we go backwards. We're going, we take communion thanking God because he enacted, started our salvation, completed our salvation. And we take it going forward. One day, I will be completely complete. I will stand before you whole. And I I almost toast to that day. I want to spend some time reflecting on this worshiping Jesus. And as we do as you come and approach the table of communion, I want you to approach it like this with fear and trembling. Not in fear and trembling because of threat, but because of promise. That Christ is working in you. That don't don't give up that tension. If you're if you're feeling tension right now, you're like, okay. In order to follow Jesus, I have to do this. I, I, I'd rather just not follow Jesus. Don't don't do that. Or don't just say, you know, I'm going to be one of those Christians that is kind of halfway in. There's no such thing as that. Let's turn our hearts to Christ. Repent. That is our working out. Let's pray. Lord, I just pray for your presence right now. Nothing more. Whatever was said is, has been said already. And so now I pray that you would just work in people's hearts. And there would be people that turn to you for the very first time. That place their faith in you right now. That they would believe the gospel. They'd believe that even though they're, they're separated from God in the life of God, because of Christ, they can be brought near. I pray, God, that we would believe the gospel again. If we've believed it a million times, we would believe it again. That your work in our lives is not punitive. You're not, like, punishing us, God. It's redemptive. You're redeeming us. Show us what that means as we take communion. As we respond to you. In Jesus' name, amen.